Famous and Gravy listeners, Michael Osborne here. Before we get to today's episode, I have a favor to ask. Amit and I were recently nominated for a Signal Award for Best Gateway Podcast. Signal Award recognizes excellence in audio, and this category, Best Gateway Podcast, is about a show that brings in new audiences. It's a really exciting honor. We're a finalist, but to win the award, we need people to vote for us. It's a People's Choice Award, so we are hoping that you will take a brief minute to go and vote for our show. If you like Famous and Gravy and you think we're doing good work here, a vote from you would really mean a lot. That's it. Thanks so much. And now I will hand it over to Amit. This is Famous and Gravy, life lessons from dead celebrities. Now for the opening quiz to reveal today's dead celebrity. This person died 2019, age 70. He and his family had been the focus of a reality television show on AXS TV. Tom Waits isn't dead, is he? I don't don't believe so. so. Uh, (laughs) It's a good guess. He was the son of a police officer, and he was headed for that career himself when he dropped out of the New York Police Academy to move to San Francisco in pursuit of rock stardom. Wow. Uh... Marty Phelan. I'm afraid I don't know who that is, but it's not this person. Okay. Uh, Jefferson Airplane. Oh, 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 of course. He struggled with drugs in the early 1980s, but he staged several comebacks and found hits later that decade. They all suffer from drug problems. <laughs> um, San Francisco music. Scott McKenzie. Not Scott McKenzie. All right. His birth name was Edward Mahoney. Oh, oh my God, Eddie Money. <laughs> Today's dead celebrity is Eddie Money. <laughs> oh, wow, I didn't know he went to San Francisco. I knew him as a New Yorker. You're back in New York. You're right. home turf. You're a success. You got two hit singles uh, under the belt. How does it feel to be back home? And, and I guess on your own terms. Is it exciting? I'm nervous. My mother's here tonight. Your mother's here tonight. Well, do you work better live or in the studio? I think I'm a better live performer, but when I make my records, uh, I make them pretty much live. I don't use that many overdubs. I'm not like uh, a band that takes two or three years to make another record. I believe in going in the studio, if I can get the bass and drums, the rhythm guitar, the rhythm guitar and the rhythm piano all together on one take, I do it because I believe that rock and roll should be spontaneous and live, and it shouldn't be really too difficult. Welcome to Famous and Gravy. I'm Michael Osborne. And my name is Amit Kapoor. Michael and I are looking for ways to make life better. And we believe that the best years might lie ahead. So on this show, we choose a celebrity who died in the last 10 years, and we go through a series of categories reviewing their lives to extract wisdom and inspiration. At the end, we answer the question, would I want that life? Today, Eddie Money died 2019, age 70. Category one. Wait, baby, hold on. <laughs> okay. God damn it. Uh, I'm going right into it. <laughs> That's going to come up again. Okay. All right. Category one, grading the first line of their obituary. Eddie Money, whose string of rock hits in the late 1970s and 80s included Baby Hold On and Two Tickets to Paradise, died on Friday in Los Angeles. He was 70. A little short, huh? <laughs> You think? Yeah. Yeah. I was insulted. Yeah, there's no... I'm um, insulted. I am pissed off about where's this Where's the one. color of money there's here? There's nothing. There's nothing in here. Yes. There's two hits, and I don't even know if they're the ones I would have chosen. 
I would have at least considered, I want to go back and absolutely take me home tonight. Like yes. that, th- these are earwormy songs for sure, but like there is nothing in here, Amit. Yeah, Eddie Money was born, sang two songs and died. <laughs> Exactly. I don't like it at all. So I actually read this and I was like, okay, we grade this thing on a scale of one to 10, right? Yeah. What is a one? Is it like factually inaccurate? Is it insulting? Is it like, because that's where I'm at. Yeah, I think so. I, I think to get to the lowest of the low, yes, there must be a complete inaccuracy or like you said, insulting in some way. Like but that a complete, doesn't happen. They issue a complete correction. disrespect for a life that does not deserve disrespect. This is going to come up again, this thing about disrespect. I String of rock hits, this gives him absolutely no personality. It says nothing about the story. Look, I'm not like an Eddie Money diehard or anything like that. But I read this and thought, are you kidding me? There was time to do a lot better on this. Yes, totally. So The man was 70 and had been diagnosed with cancer. uh, I mean, if you and I were going to rewrite this, you know, I think you could have said like blue collar rock star. That comes up a lot. I mean, even just the word rock star. Yes. Like he could have been the bassist for all we know in the yeah, way this is Exactly. Written. That's what it sounds like. It sounds like the drummer that like we never heard about. Totally. There's no personality to it. There's no before and after. And like you said in the before, you can say unlikely rock star rose from blue collar uh, from a family of cops or right. the after. Right. The things he did after. He was on his own reality show at the time of death. Absolutely. You know, unlikely. I would have liked the word unlikely in here somewhere. And the rest of the obit actually gets into this stuff, but this first line has zero interest. And you miss a lot. I think we'll get into it. There is something actually to be learned from this man's life. This gets at none of that. So I'm very pissed off. I have my score. Uh, Go ahead, sir. Two. Okay. And the only reason I'm not giving it a one is that there's nothing inaccurate. And two tickets to paradise. I mean, that needs to be in the first line of his obituary. Yeah, I don't think they did wrong in the two songs that they chose. I see your fury. I will match it. But I'm going to raise it one um, because I don't think it was insulting. You know, the absence was insulting. There was no deprecating language. I'm saying, isn't that is omission is omission itself deprecating? It is to me, possibly so. But for me, direct inference needs to be there for a two. So I'm at a three. Okay, two and a three. (laughs) Come on, New York Times. Let's move on. Category two, five things I love about you. Here, Amit and I work to come up with five reasons why we love this person, why we want to be talking about them in the first place. I'll start. This is obvious, but it it matters, and I think it needs to be talked about. Earnestness. Earnestness. I really like this man's earnestness. Okay. I mean, Eddie Money is as earnest as they come, and I think that this is the quality that connected him with his fans. Like, this is this man is very imperfect and deeply flawed as a rock star, so much so it's kind of unbelievable, and he finds success despite it all, I think because of his earnestness. So there's a ton of retrospectives about Eddie Money out there. I read stuff in the New Yorker and the Washington Post. There was one in Rolling Stone by a guy named David Brown. I'm going to read a few excerpts from his Eddie Money retrospective. He was rock and roll's endearing every palooka, a clumsy, somewhat overwrought guy. Palooka. I know, that's a good word, right? His stage moves were always a little gawky and spasmodic, his borderline hoarse voice in need of a lozenge or two. He preferred his rock and roll almost proudly, unabashedly generic. (laughs) Again, this is a fan. He threw himself into songs and stage shows with a sloppy passion. I really like that phrase. 
Rock lyrics don't get any more generic than those in Think I'm In Love or Baby Hold On, but he sang them and other songs as if he believed in them fully in every single word and that his life depended on conveying them with as much intensity as he could. That is Eddie Money to a T. And then finally, there was nothing remotely subtle about any of those songs or their arrangements, but he made you root for him, especially since so many of his songs amounted to confessions about how much he'd screwed up one way or the other. I think that there's like this guilty pleasure thing with Eddie Money. I will never play an Eddie Money song with anybody else in the room, but if you catch me in the car and one of his songs comes on, I might just sing along, right? I also think that there is this, this kind of goes along with earnestness. I think he's most effective when there's this like romantic nostalgia. The song I want to go back has always done something. And I think I saw it at when, you know, when I was like 10 or 11 or 12 or something. And there's something very heartwarming about that. Like, I wish I could go back and do it all over. Right. But I can't go back. I, I, I actually really kind of love those lyrics. I think it's a very familiar feeling to face regret and or relive great experiences, whatever it may be. I also think um, Take Me Home Tonight, I never put it together before doing the research on this episode that the line, Be My Little Baby, was a callback to the Ronettes and Ronnie Spector singing Be My Little Baby. Yes. And he, there's this great story about, like, he drags her out of retirement, essentially. It's like, I'm not going to perform this song unless you sing that line. But even that is sort of like, you know, caught up in nostalgic romanticism. Totally. And that right? was also uh, the first live callback. Yes, I saw The first that. live sample <laughs> yeah. in a song. I'm not the world's biggest Eddie Money fan, but I do, like, really appreciate that kind of earnestness. I mean, there is a made you want to feel these things as if his life depended on it. Like, I really appreciate that in somebody, and I think I desire it, too. Yeah. You know, I, I I like somebody who's so caught up in passion that whether you like it or not, you're like, you're rooting for him, you know? I'm kind of won over by Eddie Money, and I think it's because of his earnestness, and I think it's his superpower as a rock star. So that's my thing, number one. Very good. So number two, I'm going to say Pleasantville. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, this is going. Yeah. yeah. So, Eddie Money grew up in Levittown, New York. And how much do you know about Levittown? Very Michael? little. You've explained this to me once before, but uh, give it to me. So, again. I do because as an American studies major in college, we really like spent quite a bit of time on Levittown. It's like a planned community or something. It's the first planned community that existed on Long Island, built by the Levitt family, but is essentially credited for the model of the modern American suburb. So, it was the first really planned community and all sort of suburban sprawl that happened after that, they kind of point to the creation of Levittown as the origin of that. Huh. So with, you know, a very liberal arts education and lots of, you know, hippie professors, they pointed out to me that Levittown was like the destruction of the soul of the city, hmm. right? It was the death of the spirit. Yeah, it's right? co cookie cutter. Right? Cookie cutter. This is where Leave it to Beaver is born, and this is where yeah. culture, soul, and spirit die. Well, I certainly, it's interesting. The word generic has already come up a couple times in this conversation. It sounds like that's kind of what you're talking about. No, I'm actually talking about the exact opposite. Huh. I'm saying that, you know, yes, Eddie Money's lyrics specifically might have been generic, but he was by no means a generic person. Right. Right? You know, he was a long-haired person that fled from a family of cops. Yeah. Right? 
what I like about this is the misinformation. Mm. The fact that he uh, he rose from this supposed predestination of the quintessential definitive death of the spirit to have spirit. Say what you will about generic lyrics or whatnot, but Eddie Money has spirit. Yes. And he has soul, and he followed his passion, moved out west to Berkeley, and started a rock and roll career. Yeah. Right. So there is no predestination in the fact that he was came from Levittown, but also on a broader scale, how we, how we view uh, cities and suburbs, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm a city snob. Yeah. Right. And so this is giving myself, you know, a little room that there's not this rigid, rigid distinction between spirit and soul arises from the city and the suburbs produce, you know, nothing but textbooks. And I like, I like the erasure of that history for Eddie Money. Yeah. I love that. It actually segues very well into my number three. Okay. I wrote Simplicity. The Eddie Money story is kind of like a PG-13 rock biopic. Very much. Yeah, right? I mean, he grows up in Levittown, this, you know, Pleasantville-like suburb that you talk about. And it sounded like he was sort of between Long Island, Queens, and Brooklyn. I didn't realize what a kind of like Brooklyn kind of guy he was, a New York guy, until I started listening to the interviews and hearing that accent. Which I think he like strung along purposefully all the way to the end. I kind of agree. But so, you know, he, he comes from a family of cops and there's this story of, you know, his granddad, his dad, and his brother were all cops. He was going to be in police academy. I need to pause on the word police academy too, because his original name perfect. is- yeah, yeah, his original name is Mahoney. Like the whole, I actually went and was like, was the Steve Gutenberg character in the police academy movies inspired by the Eddie Money story? I found no evidence for it, but I still have my suspicions. Let's hope. Anyway, he goes into the police academy, decides this is not right for me. I read you that one joke the other day. That was my favorite Eddie Money joke about this, is that perhaps he couldn't hack it because he wasn't, what was it? It was like, couldn't get- uh, He wasn't giving tickets that were profitable. Instead, he was giving away tickets to paradise. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, his dad, you know, tears up his Jimi Hendrix poster as Eddie Money strikes out West, lands in San Francisco, parties his ass off for 10 years between 1968, and then finally meets Bill Graham, this legendary rock promoter credited with bringing up the Grateful Dead and Jefferson Airplane and a whole bunch of others. And then he, you know, has rock stardom hits, you know, Eddie Money, and then falls deeply into drugs. We'll get more into that later. And then has this, like, great late 80s comeback. And then really moves into being, you know, a stay-at-home dad in so many ways. Not stay-at-home dad, but, like, you know, family man for, you know, the last few decades of his life. I mean, all of that, again, PG-13 rock biopic. When I say simplicity, it's not all that complicated. And I don't think we consider simplicity a virtue enough. I think that, you know, you and I are trying to extract wisdom from the lives of dead celebrities and so forth. And I think we're looking for nuances in places, but I don't know that it needs to be all that complicated. I kind of want to go out and have fun. I want to have a career that's worthwhile. I want to dedicate myself to being a family man. And I want to have an interesting life. The Eddie Money story of simplicity is desirable to me on some level. Inside of it, there's human complexity and emotions and so forth. But I need to remind myself periodically that simplicity is, to me, a great virtue. And Eddie Money, both in personality and in his story, is just not all that complicated. So that's my number three. Okay. My number four, I'm trying to, I'm trying to find a way to mix this into two. And I'm going to just go with the word sweetheart. Uh-huh. Okay, so in uh, in many interviews, he refers to people as sweethearts. Mm-hmm. He referred to Kevin James 
who's, he said, is a friend of his, is a sweetheart. He referred to Ronnie Spector, to even Bill Graham. He uses it authentically, though. And I like the way he uses it as a man, because it's not a very masculine word. You yeah, know, people, I don't describe other dudes as sweethearts very Yeah, often. totally not. The substitute that we tend to hear a lot is like bud or pal yeah. or whatever, but he doesn't even use it that way. He uses it sparingly and only for the people that he actually really likes. Yeah. And he uses it as a compliment. And I would love being called a sweetheart <laughs> by Eddie Money or somebody like that. I'm probably if I'm, not going to call you a sweetheart. If, I can. Maybe I, mean, I will. Just, I don't know. Just fit yeah. one in and sometime <laughs> in, the next, uh, in the next 45 minutes. I'll work on it. I'll see if I can get there. But, okay. you know, it, it, it doesn't quite feel right when you hear it from like a Southern grandma, right? It doesn't right. mean anything because you know it's being said all the time. But to hear it from Eddie Money, I think is great. And I love that he dishes it out. And I love that that's in his heart to come out and to, to compliment his friends. Yeah, that's that. a great one. Yeah. Uh, sweetheart, why don't you take number five? <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. You just seemed like you wanted to get something else in there. So I did. I did. And thank you. Yeah. Um, so you talked about I Want to Go Back. Yeah. The song. Yeah. And this is my Eddie Money redemption. So mm. generic lyrics, yes. right? He's also referred to as corporate rock yeah. a lot, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, which is funny because it was also called blue collar rock, but that's more about the origins. Right. But, you know, just like the ultimate generic rock that has no meaning is just a sing along. Yeah. But you take the song, I want to go back, and let's just look at the refrain for that song. I want to go back and do it all over again, but I can't go back. I know. I mean, to me, that's a lyric of acceptance, right? And especially the way that he sings it. It's like, we, yes, we all want to go back. We either want to relive some parts and we want to redo a lot of parts. Yeah. But like you and I were talking about the other day, you know, in, um, I forget what is the name of the prayer that they, the things. Oh, uh, serenity prayer. The serenity prayer. The accept the things I cannot change. Right. That's embodied in this lyric. Yeah. You know, that we always want to go back. It's on our minds way, way, way too much of the time. Yes. This simplicity of, but I can't go back, I know. Yeah. Done, simple, perfect refrain of accept the things you cannot change. Or at least make an effort to, because it really does sound like instructions to himself. Yes. Oh, right? totally. Maybe we're all vulnerable to that on some level, but what is your number five specifically? Acceptance? That his lyrics aren't generic. But, yeah. and, and then I'm using this example yeah. of the display of acceptance. Yeah. The acceptance of what you cannot change, what you cannot relive, what you cannot redo. There was uh, an article I read where they said you'd be hard-pressed to come up with another rock star who transitioned from 70s into 80s so successfully. The one that leapt to my mind was Tom Petty, who I think actually does some of the same thing. And I think this came up in the Tom Petty episode. Like, there is a real simplicity to Tom Petty's lyrics as well. I I won't back down. That's not a complicated message. I'm learning to fly, right? I mean, and... There's a real poetry to great rock music that way. It doesn't need to be complicated words, but they can do so much work, yes. right, to, to speak to us. Yeah, um, and I think there's something to be said for hundreds of people in a bar just saying to themselves, but I can't go back. Yeah. You know, I hope that's internalized. I agree. Wow, that's a great list. I'm a little surprised that we didn't get the sort of no filter on him on our five things. And maybe I'll just slip that in there real quickly. Okay. Well, just because I don't think he thinks much. Like, you look at the interviews with him, and he doesn't, he just answers, He right? just answers. It's, it, everything's a joke, too. He's a huckster. Yeah, totally. A lot of people judge success in, in a lot of strange ways. You said uh, you'd know you've made it when you start making collect phone calls to your folks. Well? well it's a habit, though. I still call collect. Hi, Mom, this is collect. You know? <laughs> 
I got a master charge now and all that stuff, but uh, I don't know. Nothing changes. Maybe that folds in with simplicity in a way, right? Like, I'm not going to try and overthink anything. I'm just going to give you my answers when we talk. Yes. Actually, I think that does fold under simplicity pretty well. So simplicity and no filter. Okay. I'm going to amend my number three. We're giving the corollary to number three after five. Yes. All right, let's recap. Yeah. All right, number one, I said earnestness. Number two, uh, Pleasantville slash Levittown. Nice. Number three, I said simplicity and no filter as part of that. Number four, you had... Uh, number four was Sweetheart. Sweetheart. And number five? Non-generic acceptance. Beautiful. Great list. Let's pause. Michael, do you know one of the ways in which I'm cool? <laughs> what did you have in mind? I have vinyl records. Oh, that is cool. Vinyl records are a lot of fun. I love studying the old covers, and I love that the music is actually on the record, right? It's like been engraved. Totally, and you will never guess where I buy my vinyl records from. I would assume that you are going to garage sales. That is incorrect. I exclusively get my vinyl records at half-price books. I'm sorry, you said half-price books, that and is you're correct. talking about vinyl records? Yes, half-price books is more than books. Board games, vinyl records, CDs, movies, puzzles, and even brand new bestsellers. My goodness. It's so much more than just books. Yes. But when it comes to books, I do know that Half Price Books is the nation's largest new and used bookseller with 120 stores in 19 states. And Half Price Books is also online at hpb.com. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. All right, category three. Malkovich, Malkovich. This category is named after the movie Being John Malkovich, in which people can take a little portal into John Malkovich's mind and they can have a front row seat to his experiences. I think I'm going to go first, 1981. Yeah, I'm two decades later. Okay, so by the late 70s, uh, Eddie Money is pretty hard into drugs. 
And I want to zone in on his overdose experience. Yes. But there's a specific part of this. So the story goes, uh, he was looking for some Coke at a party. He has the dubious distinction of being the first rock star to publicly overdose on fentanyl in 1981. The way he tells the story, somebody said it was some synthetic something. He thought it was maybe a quaalude. He went out like a light. His nerves didn't twitch. Ended up killing the sciatic nerve in his left leg. And he couldn't walk for 11 months and blew out his kidneys. He walked with a limp for the rest of his life after this. Here's the moment I want to hone in on, though. It sounds like he was out, and he regains a little bit of consciousness while he is in the hospital. And the way he tells the story... I can remember being on the operating table and I'm looking at all the doctors with these masks and they're operating on me and baby hold on comes on the radio. They had it on in the operating room. These people started singing baby hold on. And the one guy said to the other, this is Eddie money. This is the kid on the radio. And they're going, Oh shit. I can't believe that. They're singing baby hold on where they're trying to like make the baby hold on. Correct. Okay. This is why it's my Malkovich. He's written this song that is about hanging on to love or, you know, the kind of like desperate feeling that whatever, you know, you're connected with is falling apart. And he's in this moment clinging to life. I mean, I I don't know when the last time you were in the hospital on the operating table was, but that is a disorienting, terrifying experience. And just the coincidence of that is... I don't know. How do you not find meaning in that, right? How do you not see something bigger than you? Yeah. But he's also got to, you know, I mean, he's got, who knows what drugs are in him or what they're doing to him. I, I just wonder what sort of like ethereal state he's in on the operating table. I have intense curiosity about what's going on in his mind in this moment. Yeah. That's my Malkovich. Love it. I thought you might like that. Mine also has to do with the song title, mm -hmm. Take Me Home Tonight, Yeah, which became a movie uh, starring Chris Pratt and Anna Faris. I saw this. Yes. yes. So it was filmed in 2007. The song was somewhat an inspiration for the movie. The song, however, did not appear in the movie. However, Eddie Money created the song, which later became a movie. Uh, on the set of this movie is where Chris Pratt and Anna Faris met. They did marry as a result of meeting on the set of this movie, and they were together until 2019. Okay. And in a interview in 2018, I saw with Eddie Money with a guy named Andrew Reeder. He tells the story to Eddie Money. He's saying, you know, this movie you did, uh, or this movie about your, this movie with your song title, Take Me Home Tonight. You know, that's where Chris Pratt and Anna Ferris met. Yeah. And Eddie Money didn't have his like quick, no filter huckster reaction to it. Yeah. He had just like a quick pause. He was like, oh, oh, cool. It was actually this, this unfiltered reaction, but without words. Yeah. And what I love about it as a Malkovich moment is the very subtle hidden impact of your life. Yeah. It trickles down so far. You created a song, that song became a movie. These actors were hired on a set. They met, fell in love. Would all of this ever have happened if you didn't make the song? More likely not. Right. So I love the hidden impact of this story, not just for Eddie Money and this validation of this song that he made 35 years prior to this revelation moment, but I like it for everyone. I have a similar story. I have a friend back when I worked at Match.com, 
This was, you know, 2005 and, you know, he had just moved to a new town and was wanted to like get out and meet people. And he was like, you know, I'll try, I'll try match. This was a completely different era than it is now. This was early days. Of yeah. And he sends dating. me an email and he's like, I'll, I'll try it. Can you make it free? And I was like, yeah, I can do that. I, I'm in my, in my junior marketing manager authority. I can, I can make it free. <laughs> and so it's I did and I gave him. a moment for a young Ahmed Kapoor. Yes. Yeah. So I gave him a subscription and within a month he meets a girl. They, they sort of become a friendship and then later date, but are now married with two kids and live a very happy existence. Oh. And they still talk about me as the ones that quote, introduce them. Yeah. Right. I did nothing at all, but respond to my friend's email and like ask my superlative to, to comp the account. Yeah. But it's this subtle hidden impact. And if I look for meaning in my life, like meaningful moments, what did I actually do? That's one of those that I can really claim. Yeah. But it's such subtle, indirect impact. Yeah. And I wish we all knew that because we all do it in some way. It's like, it's a whole butterfly effect. It's like every time we take a step or every time we flap our wings, it is reverberating somewhere. Yeah. And a lot of that is positive. This goes back to what Maya Angelou said to Tupac. Like, do you have any idea that the entire history of the world converged upon you to make you and make this moment happen? And make you important. Yes, and yeah. this is what Eddie Money got to learn at that moment. And most of us don't get to learn that. But if you can just believe it, if you can just believe in that spirit, that every step you take, every action you do, every time you don't sit still, yeah. it is reverberating throughout the universe and very well could have positive, really, really, really meaningful impact or minor, minor, minor positive impact. But it's a way to remember to guide through life and to just move and take action. I love that, man. That's really cool. Okay, category four, love and marriage. How many marriages? Also, how many kids? And is there anything public about these relationships? This is a little confusing because there are two marriages. The first marriage was in 1984 to uh, Margot Lee Walker. It's very hard to find out any information about her or the marriage. I couldn't even figure out exactly when they got divorced. I think it's 1985 because in 1985 is when Eddie meets his second wife, Laurie Harris. They end up getting uh, married in 1989. So the first marriage was when Eddie was 35. Uh, the second marriage, Eddie is about 40 years old. I found this quote that I love from a People Magazine article from uh, Laurie. She says, quote, when we met, I really didn't know who he was. I used to get him mixed up with John Mellencamp. <laughs> <laughs> so she was sober at this time, and he was attracted to her sobriety. Eddie Money continued to struggle with drugs and alcohol, although he did end up in a 12-step program around 2001, making promises to his family, saying, I'm going to get sober. Oh, so the, the baby hold on coma didn't, didn't sober him up. Not completely. It sounded like, I mean, I think he was at that point, it woke him up and I think he was trying to cool off, but I think he was caught up in addiction and alcoholism, you know, inevitably, right? So I think he was trying to cool it, but couldn't. And he eventually um, claims lasting sobriety somewhere in the early 2000s. Okay. But I think it does sound like Laurie was a very big part of that. She was a former model. Uh you know, this reality TV show that they were in, this was sort of inspired by the Osbournes, and it came about pretty late. Uh, it was really only a year before Eddie Money died that this show was there, and it sounds like kind of corny in places. I got to say, when I saw Laurie and Eddie in the public appearances, he's a great husband, it seems like. He just talks about how beautiful his wife is. And, yes. You know, also, like... Five children. Yeah. Uh, mostly so musicians few, now. Mostly too. musicians played in the band. I think that's the thing to talk about, honestly. That was what stuck out to me. 
and I think this is the one thing I want to talk about. Kids in the band. Yeah. There's a part of me that's like, I love it, right? There's something wholesome, you know, about inviting your children onto the stage to play music with you. I think that's, a, in one way, a beautiful thing. I also think it's got to be hard to be the kid of a celebrity. Yeah. Just the expectations are always going to be so high. I can't figure out if you're doing them a solid or if you're cutting them off at the knees by inviting them to play on stage with you. I know you're a big Lucas Nelson fan. Yeah, really yeah we were solid, talking about right? that and I, Yeah, and, and I do think Lucas is like blooming into his own you know, musician. I think he's going to have a great legacy and a great catalog. And there, there's lots of you know, musicians out there where they, they are, are descended from family, right? Are they're part of a, a lineage? Yeah. But I don't, you know, I think it's, this is a hard thing to know if that's the right thing to do or not. And I don't know, what's your take on that with the Eddie Money family? I, I mean, I think, he, I think he did it with the right intentions, right? Because his kids wanted to be musicians and he had the power to literally put them on stage. Right. But are are you misguiding them uh, in a direction that that is just following in your own footsteps that may not be right for them? Literally interjecting on your own songs. I don't know, I'm conflicted. And I, I guess I will give it to him as it seems like the right fatherly thing to do. Yeah. If Especially if your kids express interest and you have that ability to indulge in it. But are you adding pressure to the pressure of already being the child of a celebrity? You yeah. know what I mean? That's where I'm a little bit like, oh, good intentions and maybe it's the right thing to do, but I don't know. It also feels a little bit perhaps misguided. Yeah. And I, I think about this because, I mean, think about any money for Christ's sakes. You know, came from this lineage of cop family, right? If he did not, yeah, if he did not bloom into his own person, he wouldn't have been who he was. Right. And, and uh, you know, I come from a family of lawyers. I've chosen my own path, and I'm sort of proud of that. I mean, I think that there is this real tension with parenting where at some point you've got to, like, say— I connect with you and I love you and I like you, but uh, you know, and I like who you've become, but I also want to not have you be me. You know what I mean? Yeah. We don't know enough about it, but it was something that, I don't know, something to think about. Yeah, I, I guess what I would say is, you know, it, it would seem like you should you should encourage to spread your wings and if the child chooses to flock back at once that are mature enough to do that, then yeah. that's okay and maybe that's what happened here. That, I guess that's the lesson. And as much as I'm looking for lessons here, I want to... Make sure I've given them that, that opportunity um, while still keeping things open, whatever whatever that looks like for a given family. Yeah. What would you like to talk about? What is your take? If you have one thing, one comment to make about this love and marriage category here, what was your reaction to what you saw? Uh, he got it right the second time. That's yeah. all I'd say. Pretty simple? Yeah. Okay. Category five, net worth. I saw 20 million. 20 million. Okay. So here's my reaction to that. Eddie had a lot of money. <laughs> you know, like there was 10 years where he's broke in the Bay Area and everybody called him like Eddie No Money. I think they called him Freddie No Money just Freddie. to like, like double down on the insult. <laughs> Here was my take on this 20 million. I, I think it actually feels about right. He bitched about not having big money. Not bitched about it, but I saw in an interview or two, he's like, somehow I missed out on the big money. So I was expecting less in a way. Yeah. 20 million feels about right to me. Yeah, if for, not a little, for a guy whose career like took off in 1977, that's, yeah. you know, 40-plus well, years of royalties. Yes, but he in. is beloved enough by fans, if not, certainly not critics, but definitely by fans that anytime he performs, like he's going to sell tickets. Yeah. So there was a, a world in which he could have had significantly more money, perhaps. Yes. Uh, so I, I don't know. 20 felt like 
ultimately about right. It was more than I expected after hearing him say, I thought I was going to be in big money because 20 is big money to me. Yeah, he was self-deprecating towards me. He's like, I have to feed five kids. You right. Know? That's why I tour. Like, right, but he's Eddie, in LA. Eddie, you got 20, got 20 M in the bank. He's got a mansion. I don't know. I, like, this, this is the right number for Eddie money. I agree. Yeah. Okay, category six. Simpsons, Saturday Night Live, or Halls of Fame. This category is a measure of how famous a person is. We include both guest appearances on SNL or The Simpsons as well as impersonations. So, SNL, he was the musical guest in 1978. Oh. I know. The same year Fred Willard hosted. Same year, but not the same episode. I was kind of hoping. Yeah, we already know. It was Devo with Fred Willard. That's right, of course. Simpsons is great. It's a legendary one. Yeah. Episode called Homer Loves Flanders in season five. And Homer bangs on the radio and it clicks over to Two Tickets to Paradise. And he starts singing along. And then they also mouths the guitar riff. Near, 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 near. Excellent guitar riff. Great Simpsons appearance. Eddie Money didn't voice himself, but his song's there. Here's something you're going to like. He was on Arsenio Hall. Was he? Yeah, season okay. one, episode eight. I couldn't find any video of it, but it's listed in IMDb. Uh, he's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but no Hollywood star. Okay. How famous is Eddie Money? Amit? He's got the name recognition because of the name. The name is so memorable, yeah. right? Because it's money. It's um, Well, and Eddie has this like casual, Eddie money. Like it's got, you know, it's it's really a great name. Yeah, I it's think he's famous. I, I think you can prompt anybody, you know, probably age 35 to, to 60 and say, do you know who Eddie money is? And they'll say yes. Yeah. They say, oh, what song did he sing? I'm not sure. Will be the answer probably from about 60 to 70%. I wonder about that. I mean, his music is earwormy. Like, it really gets in your head and stays in there. And, yeah, but do you associate it with the name, or is it just kind of like that was one of those 70s, 80s hits? I don't know. It's a good question. I'm probably not the one to ask because it's, a to me, a sticky name and earwormy music, and you put those two things together, and, you know, he occupies a certain place in my psyche, like it or not. How famous is he? I don't know. I mean, he, he is not going to be, I don't think, remembered as, even though he's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I, I, I kind of feel like he's going to kind of be in a forgotten category. Yes. I don't think we're going to be talking about him 20, 30 years from now. No. I think the songs may survive another 10 or so, but even then, they're not going to have the name attached to it. Yeah. So in that way, I think he's sort of like overrepresented in our categories of fame. Yeah. You know? Because he, he fit in the era, but he doesn't necessarily fit in, in legacy categories. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. Pretty famous, though. Yes, and I mean, Two Tickets to Paradise, in addition to the Simpsons reference, it was in The Office, it was in Sideways. I mean, yeah. it's, it's been everywhere. Let's move on. Category seven, over-under. In this category, we look at the generalized life expectancy for the year somebody was born to see if they beat the house odds and to look for signs of graceful aging. So the life expectancy of a man born in 1949 was 73.2 years. Eddie was 70 years old, so under. Under. By, by about three years. He does not get high scores for graceful aging. No. The years of being a rock star, and uh, he's a haggard-looking son of a bitch by the end of it. Yeah. Like, I mean, you, you know. He's wearing he, a lot of makeup, too. He's in 12-step programs. He looks like somebody who's going to be in the 12-step program. Yeah. That, that sounds a little judgmental, but you know what I mean? Sure. And yeah. you're talking on the physical the physical level, though, but I th there was energy through the end. There was touring, you there know. There was passion. Up until the end. Yeah. So there was definitely that survival. There was that maximization. There was clarity in the eyes, too, I think, on, on some level. I mean, it, you know, you sort of do see, I don't know, light behind the eyes in, in a way. Yeah. Uh, but the body took its toll. 
Yeah. And and it shows up in the kind of frizzy hair too. Not yeah. quite Gene Wilder, but it's getting there. Yeah, it's a sad one though. I mean, he did lose to cancer, but he was still working and he's still working hard. He was still able-bodied. You can call him a little frail and frizzy. Yeah. But you know, this reality show was only one season in. It's yeah, a little it's- premature. It's a little bit. But I mean, if you were to go back to 1984 and say, is this man going to make it to 70? You know, probably yes. would have said unlikely. This man that continues to do cocaine after a near-fatal overdose. Correct. Yes. Right? I mean, I, I, I think that... Good run, given the hard living. Yeah. You know. I would agree. I would agree. But a little premature and a little sad. Okay, let's take another break. Ahmed, have you heard about the Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast? Uh, surely I have, Michael. Um, no, I, I, I actually have, and I'm, I'm, I'm into it. So this is, you're just now hearing about it? Well, yes. Nobody told me about it. I found it on my own. You found it on your own, organically? I did. It often comes up as a podcast that's recommended for people that like our podcast. Well, so Jason Colvin and James D. Graves, they're the hosts, and usually what they do is they pit two iconic movies or albums against each other uh, and pick which is best. So like Jaws versus Jurassic Park or... Appetite for Destruction versus Back in Black. Uh, But kind of like us, these guys do their homework. They're really well-researched, and they're really funny. They've started this new thing, which I really like, are these episodes dedicated to top five lists, which are things like top five TV theme songs from the 90s. I I just really dig that. It's it's a great nostalgia ride for me, so uh, highly recommend. List of five. There's something to that. We ought to to notch that away for later. So the Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast. Check it out wherever you get your podcasts. Surely is spelled S-U-R-E-L-Y. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. All right, category eight, man in the mirror. What do we think they thought about their own reflection? This category is, in some sense, about self-perception and maybe even self-acceptance. All right. I don't know how many photographs you saw where he's giving the blue steel look from yes. Zoolander. Well, he does have, like, very unique eyes. Yeah, very much so. But, I mean, he's also got the, <laughs> the pursed lips. It's kind of, like, it's kind of hilarious. Yeah, it was trained almost. Yeah, very much so. He's also got, like, a kind of New York cockiness, you know? Yes, I think that there's such vulnerability when you get underneath all of that, that it does feel like a lot of work to cover up some insecurity here. Yeah. So my instinct is to say, I don't think he actually liked it all that much. And I think the struggle with substance abuse that was, you know, many decades also sort of speaks to that, that the a hallmark of, you know, addiction is like, you can't face yourself in the mirror in the morning. Yeah. Quite literally. So- Man in the mirror, I, I, I'm saying no, he didn't like it. Even though he has a certain like sexual attractiveness, you yes. know, I think he like that's part of where the passion earnestness is coming from. It's a it's to compensate for something deeper inside. Yeah, you know, he held on to the long hair and the chains 
forever. Yes. And the other thing I noticed is that, you know, he used to talk about all the groupies and all the women in every cities that he had. And yeah. I, I don't think- It almost like he was bragging. Yeah, or or he was reassuring himself. Right. Right. And exactly. I, I don't think uh I don't think a, a self-accepted person really does that. You know, obviously that's on a continuum. You do that at times, but right. if we're if we're making one stab at it, there seems to be a prevailing insecurity. I think he struggled with self-acceptance and that's okay. And it comes out in his art at times and perhaps some of the best, you know, in the best way. You know, I think it's actually something of a defining characteristic with that. Correct. Yeah, let's let's be clear here. A no here doesn't mean bad. A no yeah. can be an indicator of of growth. Yeah, or even creative expression in his case. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing I would point out with Man in the Mirror, the loosened tie look, which comes up quite a bit. Yes. Like you see him in a suit, but the tie loosened or not knotted up properly or whatever. Looks a little forced to me at places. Like he's really trying to convey a... Yeah, I'm a relaxed blue collar kind of guy. Just loosen the tie. So much so that it's like almost a joke. Yeah. You know what I mean? Okay. I, I, I see your interpretation of it. I like it for aesthetic reasons. I think I would have liked it if you saw it every now and then. I saw it in a lot of pictures. Yes. I'm going to put on the tie and then I'm going to loosen it as quickly as possible. Yeah. Uh, but it does communicate a lot about him. Right. I mean, I think he, <laughs> this whole blue collar rock star thing, loosened tie, you kind of picture, I don't know, a businessman in a dive bar, right? Ready to sing karaoke. Yeah. Right. It's this, it's this, in this corporate rock. Like you said, blue collar rock, which is, speaks to his origins. Corporate rock is who it speaks to. Yes. They say, but it is that, um, that idea, right? That the, the alarm sounds at 5 p.m. and <laughs> back when people were in offices all the time, that immediately you loosen the tie and go down to happy hour. Absolutely. And, and you could see Eddie Money waiting for you in the bar there. Yes. Okay, category nine, outgoing message. Like Man in the Mirror, how do we think they felt about the sound of their own voice when they heard it on an answering machine? And would they have the humility to record it themselves or would they have used the default setting? While I think there's some real questions about self-acceptance with the image, I think he likes his New York accent. Loves it. I loves it, right? And leans into it. I also think like... He has a real connection with fans. He knows who his people are, and I think he's got a lot of humility around it. I think he would love to say, you reached the voicemail of Eddie Money. You yeah. know, like, I think he would actually be excited about leaving a voicemail. And he would throw a joke in there or a pun of some Absolutely. sort. Absolutely. Yeah. A lot of dad humor, especially in the latter years. Totally. So it's not a humility because the guy is full of braggadocio, right? Because right. he needs that for the security. We saw that. But there is an accessibility to him and a connectivity to him and and the outside world. Actually, let me dig into that just a second. So humility and braggadocia, are they opposites or can they coexist? You're right. We talk about this as a category of humility on some level. I think that there is a lot of compensation and a lot of braggadocia, to use your words. But I also think that there is this, actually at the root of it, true everyman quality that maybe comes with humility or at least comes with like, all right, I can feel above it and kind of egotistical at sometimes, but only so much so. I think he's above it, but not that above it. What made you decide to settle down? I mean, you've been a bachelor all this time. Well, I'm settling down, I guess, because I've met every girl in every city in the United States and <laughs> <of> Europe. And <laughs> <laughs> he has, too. So and that's telling the truth, huh? Yeah, she's just real pretty, and I figure I'm really lucky. And I, I figure there's really more to life than just... Uh, Running around and being cool, you know? I mean, yeah. my real name is Mahoney. Eddie Money doesn't want to get married. Eddie Mahoney does. So, yes, they can coexist. It's not often. Right. Uh, and I think there's a beauty in that. Yeah. Right? That, that you can have both braggadocio and humility. You just can't turn it up way too much. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, I think it's, it's about how much distance there is between the two, maybe. Yeah. 
Okay. Category 10, Control-Z. This is where we look for the big do-overs, things in life you might have done differently. Uh, mine was mine was your Malkovich, actually. Yeah, and he mentioned it. I came up in an interview. He was like, I really wish I hadn't done that fentanyl in 1980 or 81, whatever yes. it was. Uh, you know, I think he did feel like he missed out on big money somehow, and I think that that's tied up with his addiction and alcoholism. You know, it's funny. He gets asked this a few times, and you can find pieces of it, like little pieces of things in interviews. I would suspect that the biggest one for him, if you were really to, you know, hold his nose to it, would probably be addiction in the 90s when his kids are youngest. I suspect he's one of those guys who wishes he would have been there a little bit more for the kids when they're at a young age. I guess I see that a lot. A lot of people who are who say that, you know, they as their children become adults, they develop closer relationships and kind of like, man, those years when they were kids. I'd also say as a dad of, I'm talking about me here, of young children, that can be really hard. I connect with my kids in a big way. They can also... You know, there, there can be aspects of it that are hard to kind of get down on their level and stay on their level for sustained periods of time. Yeah. So, you know, I think it's something that a lot of parents can beat themselves up over. I suspect he really beat himself up over this. Yeah, because he wasn't what we'd call a social drinker, even like a social binge drinker. Right. He was an addict. Yes. You know, and these are hard drugs. Too. That's right. And he's also on the road. I mean, he's also a touring act. Yes. I suspect it's as simple as he wished he'd gotten sober earlier. Yeah. All right, category 11. Second to last category, cocktail, coffee, or cannabis. This is where we ask, which one would we most want to do with our dead celebrity? It's maybe a question of what drug sounds like the most fun to partake with this person, or another philosophy said a particular kind of drug might allow access to a part of them we're most curious about. What's you got here? I, I don't want cocktail, because I don't think I could stand his jokes. Yeah. I don't need the deep inner access with the cannabis. Okay. Uh, I think it can come out with the coffee. And this is what I'm curious about is that the contrast of the 70s, 80s, 90s, Eddie Money and the later family, Eddie Money. The 2000s, did, 2010s, Eddie Money. Correct. And you yeah. did, you know, you said that in the early years of his kids' lives, he was still dealing with addiction, but he did eventually beat it. Yes. Right. And I think that that was necessary. But in the 2010s, and so forth. He seemed to really enjoy it. He seemed to enjoy having this five children. Yeah. He talks about, you know, like putting pork chops on the table and going to the grocery store. What I would want to sit down and talk to him about is if he ever saw that. Mm. If 80s, 90s, Eddie Money could have ever envisioned that. Because the happiness that he seems to have found and the resolve is in such stark contrast to how he lived before. That's interesting. So I just want to know if it was a complete unknown to him or if he saw it as a possible outcome. I think that's a good on it. Uh, I actually did go cannabis. I was thinking like, do you remember in high school or college, like smoking a pot and like those metal pipes, like a pack of bowl, you know? A metal pipe? I thought there was always glass. Uh, no, I'm thinking like I'm I'm going back to the '90s. Like I, I remember smoking pot, like like pack a bowl in a metal pipe. Okay, um, probably. Not I don't think I was around it as much as you were in the '90s. Yeah, maybe not. You were a cooler kid than I was. I was just more high. I didn't. That doesn't make me cooler. Okay. Believe me, the self acceptance via vis a vis Luke Perry was not there. Okay. I don't necessarily want to be super high with him. I would like to slow him down a little bit. He's got kind of a rapid clip. I also think it is interesting to me that he was in, you know, Haight-Ashbury and, and part of the counterculture scene in the late 60s into the 70s and that he that he actually came up through Bill Graham 
I would like to like relive some of that journey. And I think I'd like to hear some of the stories of what it was like to be, you know, in the hate in the late 60s and early 70s and what he saw specifically, because it, it's not obvious to me that that was going to be his path. So I'm a little curious about that. And as I, you know, said at the top, I kind of like this romantic nostalgia of him. I, I think I would have liked to have heard more about that, you know, passing the ball back and forth. But I think what I'm going for here overall is nostalgia. And, you know, I, I would want to lean into that with him. He's a good example of that tendency. He embodies that tendency yeah. in a way towards nostalgia and that I think I could benefit from like having a conversation about like, what is that all about? And is this a good tendency or not? Or where is it problematic or not? Does that make sense? Yeah. All right. We've arrived. Final category, the Vanderbeek, named after James Vanderbeek, who famously said in Varsity Blues, I don't want your life. What do you think, Ahmed? Do you want Eddie Money's life? Case Against is, the music kind of stopped after the 80s. It, it stopped being created. Yeah. Right? And so the rest of the career, the 30 years following that, is just replaying the hits. That I think I would hate. Yeah, he even actually said, because uh, the song Walk on Water, yeah. that Na 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 song, like the, the part of it where he has to sing it, that was supposed to be instrumental, and I forget who it was. Somebody didn't show up that day, so he had to sing Na Na Na, and now he's got to do it for the rest of his life. And he said he gets a little tired of it, but that's what the fans want. Correct. Okay, but what are you speaking to specifically with that? This is... The job. Yeah. I, mean, I, I think the first 10 years of the job, you know, were were fun and exciting. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't think it sounds very appealing after that. Yeah. Uh, is it better than a lot of other options? Is it better than the actual corporate side of the corporate rock? Probably. But that's the case against. Uh, the journey to get to where he got was risky. I wouldn't want to experience that level of dependency, those near-death experiences. Hard living. Uh, yeah, too hard living. You know, yeah. there's there's the fantasy of the rock and roll lifestyle, but you don't want fentanyl in your veins and not be able to move your leg for 12 it, months. It's a little immature. Yes. Um, the resolve is beautiful. Yes. Right? Uh, yes. It took him quite a while to get there, but for me, in contrast to say what I said about Leonard Cohen, who was not dealing with substances, but was dealing with a different disease. Yes. Uh, you know, I, it took too long for yeah. me in, in Leonard Cohen's eyes. Eddie Money, got, he got there quicker. So I think he got there enough to have the full enjoyment of life. Yeah. Um, I liked it. I believed in the happiness. Yeah. You know, as much as I believe it when he says sweetheart when referring to Kevin James, yeah. I believe his happiness when he says he's happy. And yeah. for that... In totality, it, it's not 100%. It's probably not even a 70%, may not even be a 60%. Yeah. But yeah, I want your life, Eddie Money. Yeah, yeah. I kind of lean in that direction, too, that this is a more good than not overall. You know, this is an exciting life. I also think that I was surprised by how beloved he is of his peers. Like, there were some tributes from Elton John to Kid Rock, right? And people really were like, I'm going to miss this man. And he was do you, a sweetheart. Uh, and I think that looked genuine. And I, it did look like he achieved a level of relational wealth that you and I talk about that matters quite a bit. I'm hung up on this nostalgia thing a little bit. I think there's not just a little bit of regret. I think that there's a lot of regret in his life. I do think that he gets to a place of real gratitude and gets to experience many years of gratitude and gets to be on stage with his children. And that's exciting and fun and great. And that, 
you know, the way he connects with fans, I mean, he's got that for forever and that they're there for him. That's got to feel pretty good. More validating than most in a way. But I do really wonder how much he was ever in the present. You know, maybe in those last 20 years, he is a little bit more, but he does feel a little bit disconnected from the moment throughout a lot of his life. He's not where he wants to be when he's in Levittown and in New York and as a teenager. You know, it takes a while before he takes off as a rock star and then he falls into all those trappings of fame. Quickly. Quickly. His most successful music is backwards looking in a way. And I guess I'm holding all of this to a higher standard, but that's that's actually a reasonably strong case against for me because I do think that I want to be in the, present i think a little bit more than he was on average yeah which requires evolution and artistry yeah it also requires like self-reflection and work on yourself at a younger age than i think he did it it didn't sound like he really began working on himself in earnest until you know his 50s yeah it's a little late right and it makes sense because why would you but i don't know i want to get started a little earlier on all these things, on self-acceptance, on building relational wealth. So so I'm I think I'm a no here. He's 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 really right in the middle because there's a lot about this story I do like. And I kind of want to live a movie, you know, and this is a movie. And that's cool. That's interesting. I don't think it's for me. It's not in the present enough. And for whatever reason today I'm feeling like I need that. That's a big part of where I want to be. Yeah. I guess I'm also really afraid about the trappings of, you know, romantic nostalgia. And maybe that's it. Maybe he's just a little too caught up in them for me. Okay. One ticket to paradise, one no. (laughs) Well, I don't think we've made the case for the ticket to paradise. No, that's next. I think that's next. Amit, you are Eddie Money. You have died and you are standing in front of St. Peter, the universal proxy for the afterlife with... I assume two tickets to paradise and some choice words. Yes. You have an opportunity to make your case to St. Peter for what was your grand contribution to the stream of life? So St. Peter, they labeled me as blue collar rock or corporate rock, both different meanings, but all intended to be somewhat insulting that my music has no purpose, but let me try something with you. I'm going to say a few words, baby, hold on. Take me home tonight. Two tickets to paradise. As I say those words, there's a song playing through your ears. There's an energy running through your veins, running through your body. That is vitality. Those songs were played millions and millions of times in cars, in bars, in radios, at parties, at weddings, at bar mitzvahs. And each time they were played, vitality and life ran through the body. That is what I did. I produced life-affirming feelings. Let me in. Don't leave yet. We need you, Famous and Gravy listeners. We would love for you to participate in our opening quiz where we reveal the dead celebrity. If you're game for it, please email us at hello at famousandgravy.com. If you're enjoying our show, please tell your friends. You can find us on Twitter or X or whatever it is called these days. We are also now on threads. Our handle is at Famous and Gravy. We have a newsletter you can sign up for on our website, famousandgravy.com. 
Famous in Gravy was created by Amit Kapoor and me, Michael Osborne. This episode was produced by Jacob Weiss, original theme music by Kevin Strang. Thank you so much for listening. See you next time.